Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 68 for November 30th, 2006, Q&A number 12. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Dell. For this week's specials, visit twit.tv slash Dell. Time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, where we talk about the latest security news and explain security issues. We talk about all kinds of things, everything from VPN to uh, virtualization to encryption and uh, security. And uh, this time it's our Mod 4 episode. Hi, yep. Steve. Num- number, hi, Leo. Good to see you. Good and see you. <laughs> good, good, good to see you. Your I'm voice. seeing you. I'm imagining you. I can see you in your, in your, uh, in your Security Now lair. Surrounded by security devices. Yep. Next month, we will be together again in Toronto. Yay! Uh, And uh, so I think your last time in Toronto. You're not coming up in January, are you? Exactly. It'll be my last time. Yeah. Yeah. Then we're moving to Vancouver. And we've got to find Steve a direct flight or he'll never come up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I did look at even the direct LAX to Vancouver, and there's enough flying time that... There isn't time for me to get up there. Uh, oh, and and there aren't any super early flights. Right. So and so, uh, we'll there's just no out. way for me to get up in time. But I've got some friends in Vancouver, so yeah. you know, I can come up the night before and, and hang out. And, come yeah. visit your friends. There you go. <laughs> We're your friends. Come visit your friends. Well, you know, I was listening to. I've I've really been listening to Windows Weekly with you and Paul because you know clearly Vista is. You know, it's very much on my mind. It's very oh, much yeah. on the minds of our listeners. Well, and, and today is the launch day for business. Uh, right. In fact, I'm doing a bunch of interviews. I'll be doing All Things Considered this afternoon. Where uh, You know, everybody wants covering it right now. Right. Even though, in fact, it's not uh, available for months <laughs> for consumers. Well, yes, I know. It, it, it's sort of interesting and frustrating. I did get, I got email from someone who has a through his his corporate volume purchase agreement they just got access to it and and it, it's funny because he was explaining that his experience exactly echoed mine ah. he initially set up vista on a machine and it was just like doggy slow i mean it was just like really l- lagging and and his graphics had a a 2.0 rating it turns out that he updated to the newest uh, NVIDIA beta drivers, and his graphics performance jumped to 3.6. Hmm. He got the, whatever the heck that, what is that translucency called? Is it Aero, Aero glass. Aero glass, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, to my mind, uh, you know, I'll be really interested to see what people think after they've had an experience with it. It's pretty. It just... Uh, it just bugs me. It's like oh. I, like I like my contact lenses are fogged up or You're something. You're a Windows 2000 guy. I guess I am. But you know, I'll tell you. I mean, Vista really looks nice, and 
um, and and he also turned off the glass and then saw you know I mean he, he as as he said and this has been my experience it performs every bit as well as XP does. Yeah. And there's some enhancements any... that will make it, uh, I think, make it faster, things like this hybrid drive support. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, because that's where I was going with this. I wanted to mention that the hybrid drives are not for performance. Oh. They're for battery life. Well, but there is what... there is some performance benefit. For instance, it wakes up faster, things like that. Well, yes. So, so there are some benefits from caching, but the reason it's on... On, on small drives first and on laptop laptop drives first, as you and Paul were mentioning in last Friday's uh, Windows Weekly, is the whole idea is that 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 laptop drives or really any drives really spend most of their time spinning and doing nothing, but that's that's burning power. So so what the hybrid drive, the whole concept of the hybrid drive is that the spindle will be stopped most of the time and that as the OS writes things to the drive, it build it, it fills up this this um this non-volatile buffer with stuff eventually to be written and only as that buffer gets near full does the drive then autonomously say Whoops, looks like I've got to get this buffer cleared. So it spins the drive up. It then flushes this non-volatile cache from, from, from inside itself, which is where this non-volatile cache is, out to the, the actual magnetic media. It then erases the cache and shuts the spindle down again. Hmm. So it completely changes the, 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 the model of of how a laptop drive works so that instead of mostly spinning it's it's rarely spinning and and the whole motivation for this was was battery life on portable drives but wouldn't there be some uh, performance benefit because of this cache at all well i mean you know you you um you mentioned at some point i don't know, don't know if it was last friday or before that that um EEPROM technology does not write very fast. Well, that's what, yeah, and that was my I mean, concern is how are we speeding things up by using flash memory? Exactly, and and in fact, we're really not that much. Okay. I mean, this USB boost, that's the technology which can be used to enhance the booting of XP, and and the reason that the the um the hybrid drive can't be used that way is its buffer is all about not um not requiring the spindle to be spinning all the time uh, so it it isn't actually saving quick boot stuff got it that's what what that's what the usb boost so you might, you might want to use both i think you probably will and right. in fact i'll be experimenting with it here shortly so i can begin and doing some benchmarks to tell people you know like how this thing performs uh either way now but, you but, can't but, get a hybrid drive yet so Right, it's moot. But you can't. Can you do the USB boot, the ready boot, right now? Boost right now. Yes, all that technology okay. is is available. I just ordered a a, a laptop from Dell for Vista, an M twelve ten that has uh, you know a good video card, lots of RAM, Core two processors, and uh, so I'll try that. I, I guess we have to find some thumb drives that are ready boot, ready boost ready. I guess I uh, if they're selling such things yet. Um. I'm not. I, I haven't looked at it, so I don't know one way or the other. Yeah. My guess would be that that's not necessary any because fa- any relatively fast USB would be fine. I, I would think so. And then the idea would be that that 
that XP would write to it a bunch of stuff that it knows it's going to need when it's booting, that enough of XP would boot to to get the USB drivers going, at which point it would suck in everything from the right. USB that it would normally get from the from from the disk. But 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 again, Lee, I mean, yes, you know, everyone's annoyed that Windows takes so long to start up. But I, I want to. I want people to understand that, from my perspective, Vista boots as quickly as XP. It runs as quickly as XP. I mean, I, I want to really make sure I, I, I back out fully from that first perception I had, which was entirely due to the fact that I was using debugging version and the the pre-release version, and it was clearly not happy with my hardware. Whereas right, you know the right. final one really really got happy. Good. Um, the other thing is that I wanted to mention, I also installed it on, on a, on, I think I said last week, on a tablet. And one of the things, I mean, they've done some things for the tablet, which is so cool. Um, but when it first installed, and this relates to something that Paul mentioned uh, uh, last, um, last Windows Weekly, when it first installed, it didn't have the, the Wacom drivers mm-hmm. for the tablet technology. It went out to Windows Update got the drivers and suddenly enabled all of the tablet stuff and the the cursor when you're using the tablet you know since you're using a stylus you really don't need a cursor under the stylus so it's always sort of annoyed me a little bit that I'm dragging this standard <laughs> windows cursor around right. when I already know where I'm pointing right um they changed that so that the stylus with the tablet is this little tiny sort of twinkly star <laughs> i mean very subtle and when you tap the surface of the tablet this little ripple comes Ooh. out it's just, it's just gorgeous that's, that's aero glass steve uh, it's, well, it, it is because it's alpha transparencies. That's got to be aero glass. Except that it doesn't give me the glass UI because I've got a relatively low performance graphics. Oh. So, well, well, so, so this is just an animated cursor. Wow. I think it just uses cursor animation. Oh, it's, it's not just, rippling the desktop. It's just rippling. No. Oh, okay. No. But I mean, it's just a little ping and a sort of like, you know, echoes outwards from where I tap the stylus. I mean, it's just it's little touches like that that make me think, well, uh, I'll be running Vista on my tablet here uh, as soon as it's fully supported. Now, are you talking tablet PC or are you talking uh, it was a, a, yeah, it was a t- tablet on a regular PC? Uh, in this case, it is. It, it's one of the HP Compaq. Well, it's the, same, it's the same tablet that, that Jen is using oh, yes. okay because i really was admiring it when i was up at call for help so i got one hp doesn't sell them anymore but you can get them on ebay that it was the tc 1100 yeah i had a 4200 actually so really uh, like so um they ha- I, I, I they haven't yet shipped the windows vista tablet edition or, uh, or you correct. just don't have a copy of it well in fact it, it's interesting i don't have that specifically but there is all of the apparent tablet support is in vista it's, it's in there Okay. I, I, I'm guessing that there is no more a tablet edition of Vista, but in fact that Vista will just have that and it'll work when it's on a tablet. Very good. I'm looking forward to it, I have to say. Uh, you know, the jury's still out, as you said, on security and, and, and reliability and so forth. And it's not really a target yet. Hackers haven't had a chance to really bang on it, but I'm, I, it can't be any work. Well, maybe it could. <laughs> I take that back after hearing the Vista Virgin Stack episode. Yeah, I mean, it I, could I, be I think, worse. 
I think we're there. There will be some problems. We're we're still suffering stack overflow, sorts of buffer yeah. overrun stuff. Yeah. Not, I don't see anything that's going to fix that until we get this. Um, you know, the the um, data execution prevention, the DEP technology, ubiquitously present in in users machines but any new machine will support that and and i I would hope vista has that turned on by default well that was exactly what i was going to say all of the lessons we have learned have told us that technology that's not on by default might as well not be there at all i mean it has to be on like like service pack 2's firewall that's what finally shut down all of the worms. And so Vista will be better than XP was in the beginning because it'll have the firewall turned on by default. But it, but the question will be, does it have DEP turned on by default? Um, I, you could certainly imagine that the 64-bit version may, although that's user mode protection, and that's very different than kernel mode protection. Actually, we've got a couple questions in today's Q&A that are going to be addressing that. So we'll, we'll, we'll be covering that. The last thing I wanted to mention was something's just happened that I thought was very significant, and that is that SANS, the um, the SANS Internet Storm Center, the ISC, Honeypot, has found recently out of 12 malware specimens, three of those were virtual machine aware. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You mean blue pill style attacks? Well, no. No. Wh- what it was was... The this was malware that d- was de- was deliberately detecting if it was being run in a virtual machine and being benign. If so, the the oh, idea interesting. being yes, it, it it would see that it was in a VM and it would not do its bad stuff. Why not? Because they it want they they want to thwart researchers who are are look are, are trying to use virtual machines oh. as containers as do most of these honeypots uh, uh, in fact we learned this in episode one of security now exactly exactly so 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 the idea was that you know the, the malware will not misbehave if it's in a virtual machine container so that that researchers have a problem and the other insidious thing is that if end users were using like if if if, if security aware high-end tech users were using a virtual machine to test software for for its containing anything malicious and they were putting it in a virtual machine as a test environment deciding that oh look it this is not doing anything bad it hasn't hooked the kernel it hasn't modified any system files blah 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 then they take it out of that container to install it on their native machine platform and then boom exactly <laughs> gotcha only then would the malware wow. launch itself and and hook these itself guys into their are system. amazing. These guys writing this stuff. I, I mean, I don't want to give them a lot of credit, but they really do work hard to keep up with what's going on. Well, and and you know, this is the nature of any sort of a cat and mouse scenario where where we don't really have robust protection. All we've got is you know the good guys battling the bad guys in a more or less level playing ground and and when the when the playing ground or playing field is level and the bad guys are able to do you know as much they have the same resources as the good guys i mean that's always been the virus antivirus spyware uh, uh, spyware anti spyware battle is this is this back and forth thing and so you know it's the reason for example that i salute microsoft for being so 
determined not to allow the kernel to be modified um, under the 64-bit version of, of XP and Vista, and because this will eventually, even though as we saw last week, the, the Windows kernel protection doesn't really solve the problem. It's it's a, a stepping stone to them introducing a hypervisor that will lock down the kernel eventually and finally really prevent rootkits from ever being able to get a hold. Mm. So, neat stuff. Good, 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 okay. good. I'm wondering if I should... Uh... I guess I will try to install the 64-bit version of Vista first on this new laptop, just to see if it I, runs. I'm definitely going to be doing experiments too. I downloaded the 64-bit version. Yeah. It's uh, the 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 ISO for the 32-bit version. I think it was 2.6687 gigs. The 64 is three point something, three point six or something. So it's an, an an extra gig of stuff. So it's a bigger ISO. Still fits on one DVD. Uh, it's a substantial download, but you know it's, it's definitely something that you know needs to be taken a look at. I mean, and I want to see what drivers are available because you know w- right now Vista had all the drivers built in that I needed for the two machines that I run it on, which are not new machines. Right. And so why wouldn't the 64-bit version, since all these drivers are coming from Microsoft, why wouldn't the 64-bit version? also know about all the same well, hardware. It has to have 64-bit drivers, as you pointed out, and I guess they haven't gotten around to writing all of those drivers yet. Well, it's the third parties who have, you know, wacky hardware. I guess so. If, it, if, if Microsoft has the support, if it's a Microsoft driver, why wouldn't they? That's Is my that, point. That's your point? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Vista, you know, as, as Paul said on Friday, and as my experience has been, Vista already has known about a much wider range right. of hardware right. right out of the box right. than, than XP or certainly any earlier operating hey, you got to get have. something for five years of, of work. <laughs> of work. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying it on this uh, laptop. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a brand new Dell laptop. It should have all of the, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be anything weirdo in it. Uh, and if I mean, certainly Microsoft knows about every bit and piece of that laptop. So you'd think 64 would install right out of the box. I have a feeling we, we'll see. I'll let you know. Shall we get to our questions? We've got a lot of them. Yep. This is, as I said, episode 68 means it's uh, divisible by four and it's uh, question and answer number 12. Uh, we've got a dozen excellent questions from you our esteemed listeners. Oh, I want to say before we uh, do that, we'll get to the questions in a second, but I do want to uh, uh, mention uh, Dell, since I already did give him a little plug and remind you that the uh, the, the laptop I just bought, the uh, har- the big desktop that we just bought for Call for Help and other, uh, I put one affordable in, in system in there too, are all available at uh, the Leo's Picks page, twit.tv slash Dell. Uh, if you're buying a new computer, looking for a computer for Vista, May I recommend Dell? We've we've had such good results with them over a decade now, using them on TV, uh, where where it really is a, a challenging environment, and we're constantly banging on these things, installing new stuff, really you know working it harder than you ever would at home, and they just stand up and work and work and work and work. Uh, Twit.tv slash Dell. Any Dell you buy through that page, any Dell at all will benefit uh, the Twit TV network. So we thank you and Dell for their support. Now, let us uh, 
do you did you do you want to quickly mention spin right before we go to these questions or should we save Let's, that for later we'll talk about it for uh, next week actually i've got a, a another couple of cool stories about spin right all right next week. all right because i do i do want to make sure everybody knows about spin right and you have some neat new software coming up on grc.com too we'll talk about that when it's ready yep I actually that, i've seen a picture it, I, I i mentioned it last week i wasn't sure i was going to do it now i'm in the middle of it and so uh, next week, we will be announcing oh. the first the first piece of security software to come directly from the content in Security Now. It's been oh, my neat. talking about this stuff in the last couple of weeks that I thought, you know, I've got an idea for something I want to write. So it's a new piece of GRC freeware. We will announce and it'll be available next week. Good. Just in time for Christmas. <laughs> GRC.com. All right. Question one from Jay Sisko of Seattle, Washington. You were talking about the BitLocker technology uh, in the forthcoming Windows Vista. It's full disk encryption. I work at a company that's considering rolling out the technology to all of their laptop and desktop machines. Good idea on the laptops, I think. You know, you, you see yeah. people like the Veterans Administration losing laptops with private data on there. Boy, I mean, he says, since you're intimately aware of how a hard drive functions for data, what are the reliability implications of using full disk encryption? For example, if a non-encrypted hard drive... We're suddenly to get a bad sector. Well, only the file sitting in that particular sector would be unreadable. Does full disk encryption fail if there are errors on reading a sector? In other words, am I going to lose a whole lot? Does the entire volume fail over one bad sector? And how would data recovery tools deal with the randomized data? Ooh, right. Very good uh, question. Really good question. Um, first of all, the the good news is the the encryption is only at the sector or cluster level depending upon what type of encryption you're using. So so the granularity of loss is no larger uh, for encrypt- and encrypted drives than it is for non-encrypted drives. Um, as for data recovery software, uh, I can't speak to any other applications, but I know that SpinWrite will work just fine. Uh, it won't care that it's being asked to recover the the data and the sectors on an encrypted volume because Spinrite deals with the with the drive at the hardware level underneath the encryption underneath the file system so it will recover the data on a sector even one that it can't understand it still does data recovery and I would imagine that even a a recovery system that works at the file system level if what you're saying is true that that the, the encryption is sector by sector. The, so, the, so the FAT32 or whatever, the file allocation table, that's going to be the same, right? That's still going to work. Well, but except that the software would have to be viewing through the encryption. So you, you'd oh. have to have something running So it couldn't, first. Recover, it couldn't recover an encrypted file. Um, it couldn't say, oh, well, here's the, here's FAT30, here's the FAT, here's where the things are. Let's recover those sectors. Again, it's impossible to be... Accurate. I mean, it it, right. uh, it it would you'd have to know exactly how the software was working to know and what the nature of the damage was right. to know whether it was going to be able to help you. Right. Okay, but a qualified yes, it's okay. Yes, and um, well, and certainly in the case of Spinrite, I know how Spinrite works. Right, uh, and and it will have no problem at all. But but definitely there is no greater loss of. There's no greater loss potential. It's not like you lose, as this guy asks, the entire well, encrypted volume if you do lose a sector. I mean, any more than if it were non-encrypted. On something like TrueCrypt, where it's making a big blob of encrypted data, that that's risky. Yes. Well, well, except that that internally, it's going to 
uh, you know, individual file sectors are being encrypted standalone. I guess the point is that no sector depends upon any other sector. Uh. And so it's it so there's no there's there there there's no um I see what you know, you're like saying. like yeah blanket problem that that is being increased by just encrypting individual sectors because so, each one stands alone. You may not know where a where a file begins and ends, but each sector stands alone. So if you lose a sector, you've only lost whatever that sector belonged to, not right. everything else. Right. No interdependency. Okay, that makes sense. Joe Rodericks in Massachusetts asks, "I'm over my head here, <laughs> but I'm curious. Why can't a colonel?" Be more like a man. Oh, no, no. Why can't a colonel? <laughs> <laughs> colonel Pickering. Why can't a colonel? This is inspired by the Vistal uh, Colonel lockdown talk we uh, had earlier. Why can't a colonel have an MD5 or other hash on a non-writable medium, say a burned CD of a colonel hash that could be installed, so at least the colonel can be aware it's been modified? Now, that's interesting. So you've got yeah. an MD5 checksum on it. You've put it somewhere that can't be modified then you could validate whether that kernel's been changed or not. He says, I'm sure something along these lines could be helpful. Is he right? No. And that's because... But, but it's a great question, which is why it's here. Um, well, the, it's, it, it's because the kernel is is the thing that would be doing the, the testing check, the of itself. Stuff. Right. You'd have to and use so, some external uh, d- operating system to check the kernel. Well, you, you exactly could do that, I guess. Well, you know, and we when we talked a long time ago about the idea of of using a an external um, uh, in the case of rootkit detection, using something outside to look in and check for modifications that a rootkit had made to the OS. That's how rootkit the, revealer works. It's its own operating system, essentially. Exactly. So yeah. the problem here is that the kernel. If the kernel could be see, and and, and this the reason I wanted to bring this up is that it 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 makes it more clear, I think, that that nothing can protect itself at the same level of capability. Malware and anti-malware are fighting on on a level playing field. Rootkits and kernels are fighting in the kernel space on a level playing field. Anything the kernel can do. A, a rootkit running at the same privilege level can undo. So there. So the 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 first thing a rootkit might do is is neuter the kernel's check of itself, and there's no way the kernel could know that it had been neutered because it could be prevented from knowing that by the software which has been designed to prevent it. I mean, it's it's literally it's just not possible. The the only way. We're going to get this problem resolved. Is eventually when we have a hypervisor running at a level above the kernel or below, or depending on how you want to look at it, you know, more protected than the kernel, which is then able to enforce protection on the kernel. This is very much the way the kernel is able to enforce protection on user applications. And so, you know, it, it's sort of a hierarchy. And at the moment. Our, the, the current Windows technology doesn't have anything running at a level of that is more protected than the kernel. That's what we need, and only then will we actually have anything that that can be verifiably and like usefully bulletproof. So, so, and, and this is exactly why, as as we said last week, kernel patch protection, while a good thing, doesn't actually provide 
rootkit protection because rootkits already exist that are able to, to, to defeat it. The idea is this prevents, you know, as, as we said, good guys from modifying the kernel, which will, uh, which will finally allow Microsoft the, the flexibility of locking down the kernel at some point in the future. They just haven't gotten there yet. Oh, from Sweden, Simon Ling is worried about the future of third-party firewalls and AV. He writes, it seems like Microsoft wanted to prevent all third-party kernel modification, which means, as I understand, there won't be any, for example, personal firewalls in the future. Or did I miss something? Um, Great question. Uh, It's certainly the case, as we were just saying, that Microsoft is determined on the 64-bit platforms to, to like draw a line in the sand and say no more kernel modification what they what they have done to compensate and I mean and I believe this really I believe this fully that they really don't intend to prevent Symantec and McAfee and and the other personal firewall and AV vendors from being able to develop products they just need to develop products that don't modify the kernel to make that more possible and first of all it has been possible so they say I mean you there's a lot of dispute about that I'm on the side of of believing that it has not been possible with to do the sorts of things McAfee semantic zone alarm and so forth are doing without reaching down and modifying the kernel because Microsoft has non-published APIs and just hasn't provided the hooks to allow that. Microsoft was, the operating system was hostile to things mucking around in the kernel. So there's a huge amount of reverse engineering that was needed to be done in order to make this possible. What Microsoft has done with, with the the next generation of Windows, that is in Vista, is they they have published APIs that will allow third-party vendors to do what they want to do without needing to modify the kernel. There are there are some advanced API technologies. For example, one that allows a um, allows software drivers in the kernel to filter and monitor all of the network traffic coming and going through the machine without needing to modify the network stack. That's never been possible before. It is now possible in Vista because Microsoft has added that functionality. So so there are now ways in Vista for for third parties to successfully do what they want to do without needing the cur- the kernel to be modified. And I guess it also comes down to uh, the question of should you should you let Microsoft and only Microsoft control what goes on at the kernel level? I mean, I think about Linux, for instance, where the kernel is open source. It's published. Yep. There's no kernel protection. You can do anything you want. I mean, you can't modify a running systems kernel necessarily, but you could write your own kernel uh, with all sorts of hacks in it. Sure. Which is more secure, the, the closed... Only Microsoft has access in here, clean room environment, or the open, everybody understands what's going on environment. Right now, well, it's rem- the open environment. Cer- cer- certainly, we need to remember that rootkits were invented on Unix. That's true. I mean, that's where they came from. Ah, uh, good point. So, so the... The, the, the it's actually current, fairly you know, easy to to put a rootkit on a Linux system. Come to think of it, well, exactly, yeah. and the documentation, the open <laughs> sourceness <well> <laughs> of it, you know, makes it that much easier. Right. 
So, I mean, at, at the same time, we have the issue of, you know, doesn't having the open source mean that lots of people can look at the code and scrutinize it and work on ways to tighten it up more than Microsoft has with their closed source approach. Um, I mean, the difference is are, we're, uh, we're, we're not at the application level uh, or even the kind of the uh, OS user interface level. We're at the kernel level. Right. And, and there, are, there, are, there are two different issues that we're sort of co-mingling here. There's the issue of, of open source, closed source, and, and hypervisor kernel protection versus um you know kernel protect you know, the 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 patch guard approach which is just trying to detect modifications to the kernel as opposed to absolutely preventing modifications to the kernel so i mean it gets complex i believe that the, that when microsoft for their 64 bit systems has added a hypervisor we're we're going to see a new era of security because applications will not be able to muck with the kernel at all. Now, it is the case, though, that mischief could be performed by using the new APIs. That is, if now you don't need to modify the kernel, yet you can hook the stack, and anybody who wants to can hook the stack, then nothing prevents malware from creating a driver which they arrange to sign somehow, and driver signing is another thing that's been been enforced in in the 64-bit kernel. So malware gets a signed driver that hooks the stack. Now it can talk out through the network and potentially bypass the firewall. I guess it's it's what you've been saying all along, and I guess I've learned this lesson, is there is no such thing as perfect security. It's a process. Yes. And, uh, And there's always something. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And 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 you know, doing the best job we can of keeping this stuff out of our machines in the first place is absolutely what what you want to shoot for. You don't want to let stuff get into your system once it has uh you just can't trust it. You know, a subject we don't talk a lot about, spam is on Paul's mind. He's fed up with spam. He writes from the UK, spam, 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 spam. Security now <laughs> is preaching to the converted on firewalls, bots, spyware, etc. I doubt any of Security Now's listeners' PCs are sources of spam. I hope not. I the hope. fact is that there are millions of PCs out there that are vulnerable to being sources of spam, and there always will be because they don't listen to Security Now. Leo uh, said recently that his email filters catch a million spam emails a month. True. As effective as spam filtering might be, the long-term solution to this problem has got to be applied at source. Otherwise, the pipes will stay clogged. The solution has got to involve security. Hmm, I'm not sure I'd agree with him on this. I would like to hear your views on how it can be done. Should SMTP, the, the mail transport protocol, be replaced over time? Should we adopt the proprietary email authentication as proposed by Microsoft? There are others, by the way, that are not proprietary. Should LSPs limit users to 1,000 messages a month? Should all email be certificated certificated or has the horse already bolted through the open stable door he asks a lot of questions <laughs> well yeah i, I and, and, and i liked it because he sort of painted a picture of the way things are today um you know the the Bill famous Gates thought and he announced that spam would be conquered he announced this two years ago and it's uh-huh. long past the yeah. deadline but he yeah. thought authentication was a solution well, and I actually am a fan of that. Um, you know, in that famous twit that I participated in, 
um, a long time ago, uh, which generated Dvorak's "I get no spam" comment, where he was he, he was complaining that my email gateway was rejecting his email because it used HTML. And what I had found was that by blocking HTML email, the you know ninety nine percent of the spam GRC was receiving was blocked. And I was bouncing email. I was bouncing a message back saying, "I'm sorry, we don't expect the, we don't accept HTML email. Please send you know text only email. We'd love to hear from you." And you know, rah, 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 in Dvorak style, you know, it made for some great comedy on Twit. Um, I'm wondering since, if that still works, by the way, your HTML um, filter, because a lot of my spam now is just embedded GIFs. It's not HTML. It's just a picture. Yeah. Well, um, what I did, as you know, Leo, is I finally gave up my original email address. I mean, I was just Steve at GRC.com for for well, forever, for for 20 years. And and as happens, I mean, and you know this because, you know, your your email address is well known publicly and and what i have seen because i've looked at at remote servers connecting to my server i've watched the 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 traffic i see them just guessing names people who never had accounts at grc ever i mean most of my spam is that doing dictionary attacks just going through a list of first names and second names i mean everything that they can come up with trying to get something that you know to to find a legitimate account um what i did was i changed my email address to finally after all that time basically after giving up to to something not in any dictionary that is no longer guessable and bang problem solved so I, I then removed the HTML filter. Now people can send anything that they want to to us as long as they have our addresses. And this was important also for sales and support because I wanted people. Yeah, you, know, you don't want to block customers' emails. Exactly. Now, so, I, mean, I have so to say there is an issue because they have to know what your new address is. You change it regularly. I don't, yes, don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away your algorithm right and and we we do have uh the uh, addresses for sales and support are on our web page so you know right. and and it's it, it, there the, the the current address is, is in every receipt that they receive after they purchase spin right blah 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 so i mean we we've we've basically closed the loop so that nobody is inconvenienced and dodged all of this this flood of spam but nobody can so, guess your email address Correct. And so the idea is... And I can't do this because I can't do it. I'd yeah, miss all my email. You're too dependent upon that. I mean, and it, and it is painful to change one's email address after you've you know had it for a long time. I mean, I really understand that. I should point so, out, though, that everything we've talked about so far really is filtering. I mean, even that is a form of filtering. Correct. Correct. So, so the first thing I would tell people is if you finally give up, and I talk to people more and more who have given up trying to fight this i mean they're like me who were like you know really annoyed that this was happening and just you know filtering it and you know basically leo it's it's exactly what you're doing is using anti-spam filters to stem the flood and try to find the good email from the bad and in fact you and i had a problem communicating because yours was false positiving yeah, i had a white on yeah. on email for me so you had to explicitly <clears throat> allow me you were getting through the primary server side filtering it was the uh the secondary or the actually it was the secondary filtering that was capturing you spam assassin right so i used three-step so t- filtering but 
he makes a good point, which is that doesn't solve the root cause. Correct. So the one thing I wanted to say was that if anyone finally does give up and change email addresses, do something that is not going to be in a dictionary. Because if you just use your same, like your first name or, or whatever you use that might be in a dictionary, could be guessed, you'll find yourself immediately getting more spam. If you're Joe at earthlink.net, you're screwed. Basically, <laughs> yes. Give up. Just, that is not yes. a Joe 537499 would be fine. Right. It's very cool, Joe, that you got, you know, that name at, at, at Earthlink, but unfortunately it's pretty much useless to you now. <laughs> in fact, I think um I got some email from an account. I think it was, in fact, no, it was it was Joe at AOL dot com saying yeah, this is my email address, but I can't use it. So please yep. don't try to send me a mail at this address. Yep. And the reason I got it was because a spam message was bounced back to him from, I guess, my address. Well, now what I I wanted to address the second part of this, and and what I and that is this issue of authentication, the technology which I really like. And I'm using it, uh, and it's, it's becoming more and more pervasive, is this notion of authenticating the source of email. The, it's this SPF technology, which is Microsoft tried to sort of adopt it and then, you know, quote, what was that old expression, extend and enhance or something, which basically means... Embrace and were, extend was the original idea, but then we call it, it extend, extend and devour is what we ended it, up calling it. Exactly. Um, and, and they were unable to because it turns out that this was bigger than they were. It's unembraceable really, and unextendable. <laughs> really, well, they, they wanted to patent it and license it. And people said, no, we're not going to adopt some Microsoft thing that, you know, that, that is not, you know, in the open domain. Right. The good news is that this, this sender policy framework, SPF, is a really cool and simple addition the, 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 to, to an existing system because all it requires is that some some special DNS records be added to the 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 DNS server of anyone who wants to generate email. So, for example, GRC has a text record which has been added to our our DNS server that that says the addresses of the servers either by domain name or IP. IP address or IP range that are valid originators of GRC mail. So any incoming mail to a third party, like say Earthlink, that is is using SPF, Yahoo is, uh, uh, Gmail is. Uh, so so some email comes in apparently from from me at at GRC.com to, for example, the Earthlink server. It performs a DNS query asking for the text records of GRC.com. Our DNS, over which we have absolute control, our DNS sends back these text records, among which is one that says GRC email will only be originated from these IP addresses. And what happens is Earthlink knows the IP address from that it has a connection to. And as we know, IP addresses of, of valid TCP connections cannot be spoofed because you have to have traffic succeed that in, in that three-way handshake in order to, in order to get a TCP connection. And SMTP 
which is the transport for email, uses TCP as its transport. So Earthlink absolutely knows the IP address of the server that's trying to send it mail ostensibly from GRC. It does a DNS query to see whether that IP address we are saying, that is GRC is saying, this is a valid source of GRC email. That allows it to authenticate my GRC server as being the only source of GRC mail. And if, if it works, it allows it. If not, it drops it. Hmm. And I mean, so it, I mean, it really is a great solution. It prevents these, you know, spam bots running in botnets from originating email from other sources. Now, unfortunately, this hasn't been adopted widely yet, but it is picking up and spreading because it is a simple thing to do. You, you said that support- Hotmail, Hotmail does it, Earthlink. Does AOL uh, do it? Uh, I don't think they do. They have their sure own, as I remember, yeah, they had their own form. That's the problem. Yeah, there, there is a domain keys technology, which is another approach. I think that, in fact, I think that's the one that Yahoo adopted was domain keys. And I don't know for sure whether Yahoo is also doing SPF. There's nothing to prevent servers from doing both, and it just checks to see, you know, which ones you're, you're using. I think uh, Gmail is doing both. So um, I because I know that I've looked at my headers and I've seen, you know, that I've been that GRC server has been authenticated by Gmail. So anyway, there are there are things moving forward that just take time to adopt, which, you know, ultimately are going to help, although it's not clear that anything is a is a complete solution. And boy, doing something like dropping SMTP and switching to a different protocol that we're talking about obsoleting the entire email um, structure of the internet <sighs> in order to do that. I have to think, uh, basically, spam is like cockroaches. Uh, we've tried to fight them for a long time, roughly 40,000 years, with no success. And I think we're gonna, it's going to take us that long, if not Yeah, longer. i, I got to say, changing your address and protecting it. It works for a uh, year, though, right? You change it uh, regularly, because it doesn't work forever. I do, I do change it regularly. Because after IKB. a while, you start getting spam. And in fact, I just talked to, to Mark Thompson, my buddy at Analog X this morning, who said that he's starting to get some on his current address, and he's looking forward to making a change, uh, you know, next month essentially, next, uh, and switching over to he does a it, new he address does it next a, a, year. About every year, so he does the same thing I do. Yeah, now. yeah. So that's interesting. Have you started seeing spam? Because we're getting towards the end of the year. Nope, I haven't. Although I'm, you know, I'm very careful, as you know, because I've I've said, Leo, you know. Please well, I don't give out your address to about, anybody. About, yeah. about letting this thing escape. Yeah. No, I don't give your address to anybody. I always ask permission. I have to say that, to be honest with you, I think there are larger problems with email. Um, even with all the filtering I do, I still get too many emails to respond to. It's rapidly getting to the level where I get too many emails to read Yeah. without spending hours a day on email. Um, yeah. It's just too easy to send an email. And when you're a public figure, you get too much and I, I, I'm not <laughs> Amber and I were talking about this. We're public enough to get a lot of, of, of mail, but not successful enough to hire somebody to do it. <laughs> so we're stuck. We're, we're in that well, middle thing. You know, I'm sure President Bush has plenty of people answering his email. Well, and, you know, uh, speaking of that, I love the fact that these questions that you that, that we're discussing are from Security Now listeners. Right. And they go to the Security Now page, down at the bottom of the page is a form that, that allows them to submit questions. But it doesn't come in I, your email. It doesn't come in my email. Well, no, actually, it is a form submitted. Oh, it, right. is e- it is emailed to me, 
And the, but the problem is, is the same as Julia. I mean, I love that I get these, but I get so many of them that, for example, if I were to read them, let alone answer them, I could not be developing this new freeware exactly. that I'm excited about that I'll be announcing next week. So, you know, like, like you, I've had to make that trade off. So I really appreciate people writing. I, I just have to apologize if we're not able, if I'm not able to respond and we're not even able to answer your question because there's just so much. And, and, and I, I say the same thing. <laughs> and you know what? It's sad because I get a lot of, <clears throat> I love my email. I get a lot of great stuff and I do so far still read it all, but I just can't respond to it all. And I think well, it's rapidly, I, I, t- the time will rapidly come where I can't even read it all. Yeah, I it's mean, so I easy even, to send email. Anybody can do it, and it's just you yep. know, it's a push of a button, and you get th- if you get a thousand emails a day, you're just not going to read it all. Yeah, uh, and uh, so I, I think ultimately the problem may not be spam, the problem may be email. <laughs> it's a it's a larger problem here. But uh, let's not get philosophical. Well, basically, we're talking about developing larger communities of communicating users. Right. And I've, and I've got to say that, I mean, the, the, the news group solution that GRC has is fantastic because we have a Security Now news group at GRC, a, a, a forum there. And, I mean, even that I can't keep up with, but I dip in from time to time and, and, and see what's going on. And here we've got our, our Security Now listeners talking to each other answering each other's questions and discussing things. And, I mean, it, it's fantastic to be able to to create that kind of, oh, a, you know, absolutely. an online community. Absolutely. Uh, Greg Rudd in Seattle gets it. He writes, if a computer becomes infected with malware, is running an anti-spyware program installed on the infected machine a reliable method to delete the malware? How can any program running on an infected machine be trusted? Yep. That's kind of the bottom I mean, line, isn't no, it? And, and that's why I said that he gets it. I mean, it is, it is the golden rule that if your machine is ever compromised, you can never trust it again because we don't know what has happened. Now, increasingly, I've been telling people that on call for help. You know, in the past, we would talk about how to disinfect, how to get rid of viruses. But these things have gotten so nasty so uh, adept at burrowing into your system. That, oh, and tenacious. Yeah. That it's, you know, you, you just can't take them out. You can't delete the files because then, uh, then other things break that they've that because they've inserted themselves as a filter in between some <laughs> other things. And, and you take that chunk out in the middle and you break the communication flow. You're killing the patient. So, I mean, yes, the, the, if, if all you can do is run a, a malware remover, then that's what you have to do. The better solution is to think about the structure of your machine. I mean, the best thing you can do is to set up a, a C partition, which is big enough for the OS and your applications. And that only needs to be maybe... You know, maybe 15 gigs, depending on what depending on what you're doing. Then have a D partition or you know DEFG. I mean, you know, if it's funny, I run across people sometimes from the old DOS days who've got the whole alphabet covered. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> they, on my Q drive. I've got well, this. I, you know, I, there is uh, removable drives. I always make uh, be WXYZ like CD-ROMs and so forth. Because then if I install something, it won't screw up anything I've installed on the CD-ROM. It's going to stay at the end of the alphabet. Well, the advantage to me of keeping my system partition small is that it can be imaged relatively practically. That is, right, I'm able to right. do an image and on, on, onto a couple DVDs or onto a, an, an external uh, spinning you know, Firewire or USB drive. And so, so my point is that 
if malware infects you, it's infecting not your entire drive, but it's infecting your system partition. You know, that's, you know, you, it's not like it you're going to have, it, uh, although, you know, it wouldn't spread to a data partition. I mean, sometimes they do. They do. Viruses will install uh, themselves. Into well, data. I mean, and, and we've seen instances, for example, where JPEGs right, are right. carrying malware. So, so, but, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, what are people with 250 gig drives doing with the drive? That's, that can't be 250 gigs of programs. No. Certainly, most of it is music and movies and, and media files that are massive. So, so, so my point is that if you were to, if you were deliberately keep your system partition small, only as big as it needs to be. I mean, I've got a 17 gig partition on my main workstation that is, that's still only half full. This is everything I use is on is is in you know half of a 17 gig partition i don't even know where i came up with 17 but it made sense once magic number (laughs) and so so my point is that i can make images it's practical to make an image of my c drive because i've kept it small you just it's not practical to make an image of a 250 gig c drive i mean okay you could do it by using a you know a draw an external drive but it's going to take a long time and you're imaging all your media which is, you know, much more transient and probably doesn't need to be, you know, well, basically it doesn't need to be be saved in the event of a malware right. um, incursion. Do you still so, use Drive Snapshot to do your uh, images? Yep. I'm going to get I love that. Drive. I love Drive Snapshot. It runs in Windows. You don't need to leave Windows. You're able to just to sort of, it, to just to run it on, for example, against the C drive. It makes a snapshot. And what's cool is they're mountable snapshots. So you're able to mount that as a drive letter if you want to poke around and Just get, get a something, file or something from yeah. exactly from a prior snapshot. And and so my point is that if you then got infected, if your data is separate from your from your operating system, you can you, you can restore your operating system from a, from a recent snapshot and not lose the data that that you've been working on since. So I mean, it, it increasingly, I think it really makes sense not to have everything as just one big blob uh, in, in a C drive. I, I think uh, you know, as I'm getting ready to create this Vista machine, um, it's a it's an opportunity to kind of sit down and think about these strategies. And I think that that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it on the network, uh, back up the uh, partition, cr- create a good Windows 64 Vista 64 partition, um, back it up. Uh, as an image, and that way, if I should get spyware, I don't anticipate it, but if I get spyware or virus infection, I could quickly restore yeah. to the way it was. Yeah. Backing up st- is now becoming the best strategy of all. There, There is no interim in, in between thing to do. <laughs> it really is true. <laughs> you, gotta, you, 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 you know, as I said, if all you can do is run anti-malware, that's all you can do. Right. But if you've got an image, it's much better to restore an image. And you just know you have the peace of mind that you've you've stepped back in time to a point when your system was clean. Best time to do it when you get a new system. And then... Uh, I guess, you know, this is what we always did on the TV show. We would create a, 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 a couple of images. First, an image of the just the installed OS. Yep. Uh, then an image of the installed OS and applications. Yep. Uh, and then what is key is that you know that that's good because you haven't even gone online yet. And when you want to build a new image, perhaps with new applications or new drivers or more likely all the Windows updates, 
you actually go back to the known good image, restore that, add, add the applications at that and time. And then move forward again. And then move forward from that yep. point so that you're always yep. moving from a known good spot. Yep. Otherwise. That's, exact, that's exactly my approach to it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you, 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 know, you, you could be restoring a compromised system. That's the point nowadays. You can't tell. Well, and, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because here we've only been talking about malware. But as we know, what, something about Windows just kind of goes a little wonky over time. Yeah, it's a good thing you to know? do anyway. I reinstall yeah, and, all the time. Exactly. So, so, so backing up to a known good point and then installing a few more apps and then moving forward, well, installing a few more apps and then making an updated snapshot, it does allow you to sort of reset your, your Windows system to a, a, like an almost new condition. Right. I, uh, this is where a, a gigabit uh, Ethernet and a big terabyte NAS backup system is really helpful because anything that I put on my network, I can then uh, partition or rather a uh, snapshot out to that yep terabyte uh storage and i have a number of good images they're not even on the system but as long as i can get on the network i can do it right eric in san jose is in the market for a powerful new machine i'm interested to know your opinion and maybe have some explanation on computer hardware oh good this is fun i was looking for the most advanced systems on dell and found only the servers have the option for dual quad core processors uh, i think he's looking at xeons Seems to me any enthusiast would want that. Well, is it better to buy a server to get the latest in performance? They definitely cost more. Is the difference between computers designed for home versus business versus servers in terms of performance and quality? I know the business level tech support is better, but do these systems offer higher levels of performance and quality control as well? I can answer one thing. A lot of this comes down to Intel and the fact that they won't let you sell a Xeon-based computer as anything as a computer, as a desktop. It's sold as a workstation or a server. That's just a branding thing. They tell Dell you can't call it a desktop computer. Interesting. So they're always at least a workstation. Yeah, I've been looking at that too, as a matter of fact, because uh, as I think I mentioned, I'm still running Windows 2000 on an aging hardware platform. <laughs> it's time, time for a Dell, dude. <laughs> I've got a pair of uh, I've got a pair of 866 megahertz uh, Pentium two or three. I think Pentium three. Oh dear, what are you using uh, that for? Well, it's the problem is it's so hard to move. Right. I mean, I've got this fantastic mature environment. Mature belongs well, yeah, in an I mean, old age home. Mature. Actually, it does. And as a matter of fact, when, when I, I mean, it, it's a mixed blessing. <laughs> I look at all the crud that I've installed in this thing over the years, and it's amazing it still runs. Yeah, I and think so, it's time for a new system, Steve. And and so my point is that obviously I don't change hardware often. Because I mean, this is proof of it. Because I'm here, I am running on old, old dual P3 866, and so my point is, since I don't, I have change one of those hardware, for a doorstop, actually. Right. So my so my point is, since I don't update my hardware often, when I do go through the pain of switching to a new platform, I want to reach far ahead. I mean, like beyond what I need now, yeah. knowing that I'll probably be stuck with it for the next, you know, five or ten years. That's kind of what so, I did when I bought the Mac Pro. I mean, that's what I what, what yep. we're we're working on right now is a quad processor. It's a dual Xeons, dual 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 dual, dual core, right? And and I tell you, uh, I feel like I'm reaching into the future. I can't get this thing, you know, more than ten or twenty percent usage. 
Well, that is that is where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to a dual dual core. I think dual quad core may be a little overkill. It's, well, and I think uh, that's one reason that, to answer this guy specifically. That's an awful lot. I mean, that's what I have, but I, that's just because that's silly. I'm silly. What I, I have dual found, core and, is plenty. Yep. What I have found um, doing some research, and I was just looking at all the Intel motherboards available, is that you know you you want to look at. Uh, what kind of audio, what kind of video, how many of what type of PCI slots you've got, and then what the maximum amount of memory is and what type of processors and how many you're able to put on the motherboard. So those are sort of the things that, that you know, from a, a completely aside from branding and what you're going to call it, whether it's called a workstation or a server, blah, 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 um, you know, Intel does make high-end workstation motherboards that are dual processor, dual core. So you can go to the high end of the workstation or the low end of the server and sort of get, you know, basically what you want. I like to run a lot of displays. I've got three in front of me. Um, I will definitely go to a system that allows me to run three displays because I'm just I'm hooked on the idea of being able to have that much screen real estate. I can't imagine, you know, going back to a single display now for my main system. So I need to be able to have enough PCI slots to put graphics cards in in order to run, you know, large LCD panels. So, so that's that's a consideration for me. The, I don't care about audio for my workstation. That's not a, you know, it's not a, a media machine. Um, oh, and having integrated RAID is, I think, now that RAID is on motherboards to a greater and greater degree, just having it built onto the motherboard so you can run three drives in, in, in a RAID 5 and just know that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. For any next-generation system, I think at least running a mirror and maybe even a RAID 5 makes a lot of sense, on, too. On the computer or as an external system? Lots of motherboards build it in. I know that Intel now, let me has. Let ask a- you about this though, because and, and this actually is a, 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 a important question to me. Uh, my in- impression of most of the motherboard RAID controllers is that they were software. They're BIOS-based RAID controllers, not hardware RAID controllers. Yes, that's the case. So, and, and, but RAID so- five would require hardware. Uh, is that correct? I know that I know that Intel's motherboard says they support RAID five. See, so I have some it, questions it, about how good the RAID five implementation would be. Well, you're right. Although I have seen when when you boot um, FreeBSD, for example, or maybe maybe it's Linux. I think it's Linux, in fact, where it it runs through a bunch of tests to determine what the optimal RAID strategy would be uh, using different approaches for. For like you know, generating RAID checksums and 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 RAID images, and the performance is really getting pretty far up there. Hmm. And you need something for one of those extra cores to be doing. <laughs> True, you have enough processor now that you could. You, the so RAID, software RAID isn't such a bad thing. So RAID zero so is, much, is striping, which speeds up the writes and reads. Although again, in our tests on BIOS-based software mother, you know, the motherboard RAIDs, uh, we haven't seen much improvement. There's yep. RAID 1, which is mirroring, and that's for redundancy. I have some issues with that, frankly, too, because uh, in my experience, uh, you shouldn't count on that as a backup by any means. And then RAID 5, which is using uh, three drives, right? Don't you have to have three drives for RAID 5? A minimum of three, yes. Yeah. Uh, you're able to so use you're doing, more. So you're doing both striping and mirroring, or is well, it only fact, mirroring? It, 
It's actually neither. It, it's a very sophisticated approach where basically... It's a redundancy approach, though. It's a redundancy approach, but it's much better. See, striping is zero redundancy. Mirroring is 100% redundancy. RAID 5, you, you get an extra drive of sort of checksum information. Right. And so if any one of the three dies, the system is able to rebuild the, the dead drive from the data in the other two. You just swap a new drive in. And that's how my uh, NAS storage works. It's a RAID 5. It's three drives, RAID five. Now, see, in my in my case, for a personal workstation, I'm not at all concerned about drive performance because drive performance is already so far beyond what what a workstation needs mm-hmm. that it's just not a concern for me. I'm now, not sure I'd be... agree with you, though, Steve. I think, especially, well, for instance, on this quad core, I think you you're I/O bound. You have so much processor performance that you are I/O bound now. Yeah, I guess my point though is that. For workstation, that is for me sitting at here, oh, right. you know, doing email. Well, well, um, you know, you, you could go back to that P3. <laughs> You'd be fine. Uh, that's why I'm so happy right now with my with my P3. But not everybody. I mean, but if you're doing anything demanding, editing video or ripping CDs or anything like that, uh, hard drive performance does become important. I put a Raptor in yes. almost everything I do, a 10,000 RPM drive. Then I certainly agree, and I agree then that you, you know, not not only do you want to get off the motherboard so that you're not doing software-based RAID, right. but you probably want some caching on a separate RAID adapter so, so that the OS is able to dump data onto the RAID and move on, and then the RAID uses its on-card cache and writes stuff right. out to, to the RAID asynchronously. Right, right. You really want that, 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 uh, that additional overlapping. I believe I have that in my in front terabyte NAS. So do we answer Eric's question? I don't remember what his question was. <laughs> Let me go back and uh, and look. I have it written down here. He wants to he's, he's just basically asking uh all about hardware and he wanted to know quad dual quad core, which I think we're both saying is is not necessary for most applications. Um you'd get more benefit from a say a faster video card or a faster hard drive than you would from having four cores. I can't imagine anything other than a a a compute bound high-end server or somebody who's doing tons of media compression or compression. 3D rendering or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 3D 3D rendering or media compression. I mean, I pin my processors when, when I'm compressing media and and the hard drive just kind of flickers 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 cuz all of the all of the time is spent by by the processor right. doing, you know, MPEG uh, MPEG2 MPEG4 compression. So, so you should come over here and use my Mac Pro. Because this thing or is get fast. One, or get one, get one of my own. Yeah, this thing is fast. On that kind of stuff, <laughs> it's as fast as, ever, ever, as I've ever seen. That's very cool because it's a pain. I mean, I, the, oh, my yeah. solution is having multiple machines just running in the background. It's funny, too, because I... I keep wanting to write and to you know I have my little my little window gizmo called Wismo that is like all kinds of little features yeah. that that I've added. Um, I want to add to it the ability to monitor a system for how busy it is and to start ringing a bell, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, playing a media file as soon as its level of busyness changes because I'll I'll, I'll start a compression on a computer. And forget that it's running, uh, you know, and come come back hours later when it's been done for a long time, and wish that I had something that notified me when it was through. Right. Right. So, I guess yeah. to answer his question most specifically, he's 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 asking, should I get a server or a computer? There are really three choices. There's 
computer workstation or server. Servers are really tuned for being servers. You don't need a server. If you want quad-core, you can get a workstation. But I think Steve and I agree. Even though I bought one, I don't think most people need a quad-core workstation. I, I completely agree. And, Leo, talk about expense going exponential. <laughs> yeah, I it mean, goes up those, pretty quick. Th- oh, those things are just so expensive. But see, but see, I was buying for the future. I shouldn't have to buy another computer for quite some time now. That's the plan. Which will be sad. Yeah, because that's part of the joy of life. <laughs> so that's why I got this laptop, right? Matt Carroll of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, wants a bit of clarification. In episode 65, you discussed configuring your regular mail client, Outlook, Outlook for instance, to access Gmail via POP and SMTP with an SSL connection. Does that mean right. if my PC is connected to an unencrypted open Wi-Fi connection and I send or receive email using an email client configured to use SSL, the messages cannot be intercepted by someone sniffing the connection? In other words, is it safe to transmit email using Outlook or a similar client via an open Wi-Fi connection if I'm using SSL? Yes. It is. I Absolutely. thought you were going to say no. Because sometimes, sometimes it opens up the connection in SSL, but then reverts back to unencrypted, doesn't it? Not not POP and SMTP. Ah, okay. It, it, exactly like using a, a secure website where the SSL connection is established first, it cannot be sniffed. It cannot be spoofed, and and you then you, you you then have an encrypted tunnel through which all of your email traffic goes. We should so, point out that on web-based servers, however, this is not the case necessarily. You need to be careful with with, with Gmail. As long as you do H, as long as you go to it with HTTPS colon slash slash mail dot google dot com. As long as your initial contact to the server is secure. After you log in, you stay secure. Whereas if you if you go HTTP colon slash slash, that is, you you first go to it non secure, then only your login is secure, and Gmail reverts to insecure afterwards. Yeah, and I think people get fooled by that. But in his case, yes, if you are if you're using SSL with POP and SMTP, you can absolutely not be sniffed. Now, if you're using open Wi-Fi, unencrypted, blah blah blah, you know, of course there are other concerns that you would need to be aware of. But certainly, at least your email would be safe. Yes, yes. In fact, that's what I do. Uh, I still use VPN, but I but I do do that at least. So if I forget to turn on the VPN or whatever. My email say, I mean, the first thing you want to protect is your email password, but then it's nice to protect your email, too. Yep. Uh, Eric Sarat of Asheville, North Carolina, catching up on back podcasts. He had a question about drive capacity. I know Steve mentions getting the smallest drives he can find. Is there an ideal size? I mean, you can get 500 gig drives now. Is it better to get a 160 or a 100 gig drive? He said, I can actually get drives down to one or two gigabytes. Obviously, that's too small. By the way, I usually get the old PATA drives, as anything faster is usually a waste of money for my computing needs. But if you recommend SCSI, UGG, or SATA, S-A-T-A, I would be open uh, to this, given your reasoning. Is PATA IDE? Uh, Yes, PATE is the original IDE style. Um, I I I thought there was an parallel ATA. I get it. Okay, exactly. Parallel versus serial. Yeah. Um, I I thought it was an interesting question because I did talk about deliberately asking my computer supplier guy when I'm when I'm buying drives just for random use here you know what's the smallest drive I can still get no these are applications though for example GRC's server I think I'm running a pair of 40 gig drives 
on in in a in a mirror on one of my servers. It's not the main GRC server. There I've got a SCSI RAID five. But but there are many applications where I just don't need. I just know I'm not going to have lots of media files, and I don't need that much space. So given that I don't need that much space in that application, I'll get the smallest drive I can just because I like them better. I trust them more. But most end users, I think, are now obviously going for the 160s and, the, and you know, the 200s and so forth. You'll get a kick out of this, Leo. I just increased the 80-gig drive in my MacBook Pro to 160. Why? Because I'm I'm doing more with it now. You're putting music and it, on and stuff, and, and and media stuff. Yeah. And it turned out that 80 gigs was just it was cramping me. Yeah. So so there's an example where you know Mister get the smallest drive you can <laughs> has just gotten the biggest drive. So what's the he, optimum? He yeah, that's the biggest laptop drive. What's the optimum side? There is no magic number, is there? I mean, no, there's there, no point there, beyond which the, your problem is aerial density gets so high, so much uh, data on a square inch that you're concerned about reliability. Yes, in fact, the drive I bought, I bought a 160 gig Seagate SATA, which is what goes in the MacBook Pro, and it's Seagate's first vertical recording ah. drive, which is storing the bits standing up instead of laying down, which is you know technology we've been hearing about for a decade now, yeah. and it's finally beginning to, to make it out of the lab into production. What I would say, the, the other concerns, other than just cost and size, is power consumption and heat and this is really the the other reason I wanted to 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 put this question in here is that bigger faster larger drives do tend to generate more heat and burn more power certainly the case with with your with with your um uh 10k rpm drives leo i'm sure those guys are running a lot hotter oh yeah so you want to make sure that your power supply has enough oomph to run all the drives and the super speed processor and all that stuff. I mean, this stuff all ends up generating, you know, consuming a lot of power. A lot of that power is translated into heat. So your system also needs to be able to get rid of the heat. There, there have been some interesting cases where, where you, you'll see like computer furniture that's got a really nice enclosure for your computer that's not ventilated. And it's like, what are these people thinking? Yeah. You put any computer in there and close the door, and this thing's just going to cook inside. Well, your Pentium so, 3 might run fine, but <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> nowadays you're right. You know, it's funny because this new laptop I got um, for Vista, uh, the choice was uh, a bigger 5400 RPM drive or a smaller uh, 7200 RPM drive. And I, even though I know there's lower battery life, more heat, and now I'll have less capacity, it's only an 80 gig drive, I still ordered the 7200. Yep. Um, because this machine won't be a main primary machine for me, so speed was, is what I'm looking for on this. I completely agree. Yeah. And 80 gigs, that's that's enough unless you start putting media right. uh, files on there, which I'm not planning to. It is Windows, after all. Uh, let's see here. Rodney writes from Trinidad in the West Indies. Nice to have you listening in the West Indies, Rodney. You're probably having better weather than we are. Regarding network firewalls, can you guys bypass a network firewall to use a downloading program? He wants to use a peer-to-peer program like SoulSeek LimeWire. He says, is that possible to bypass a network firewall DSL connection? I'm thinking this guy's got an ISP that's blocking peer-to-peer networks. Well, to me, saying network firewall, I was sort of thinking he was inside of the corporation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, but exactly. I think, as I remember, in the Caribbean, a lot of the ISPs... Uh, Act this way as well. 
Ah, okay. Um, in that case, you know, this is where some sort of VPN is your friend. You, the only way to really bypass a network firewall is to is to create a a a true VPN tunnel that is a virtual private network. And I, I would suggest that Rodney go back and listen to our VPN episodes where we cover this topic extensively, and and basically use a Use a supplier. This is not somewhere that Hamachi would work because Hamachi is sort of a peer-to-peer VPN that's used to create a tunnel between machines. What, what, what Rodney wants is a, a tunnel out to a VPN supplier, somebody who is selling a VPN service. And so, so the, the, the peer-to-peer network would actually be connecting to that service and then tunneling the peer-to-peer traffic through the tunnel, through the corporate firewall or the ISP firewall, um, into his machine. So um, uh, I can't even remember now the name of the VPN service that we liked and and, and have used. Leo. HotspotVPN.com. Hotspot, exactly. HotspotVPN would be a perfect example of of someone who can who could do that. It would allow you to use a peer-to-peer network, you know. He and, and he mentioned SoulSeek and LimeWire and so forth as, as a couple. But basically, all of your ports would then be available, even if your local network were filtering them and preventing that kind of behavior. Yeah, that's that's about it, huh? And and you yep. can't an ISP couldn't block a VPN, could it? Well, sure. Um, they they could block, and this is typical of, for example, PPTP and uh, L2TP and all those crazy acronyms when we were talking about VPNs. The good news is that modern VPNs are using SSL technology in order to use non-traditional VPN ports, and then an ISP is not going to be able to block you. Ah, okay, because they won't know what to look for. Right. Brian Voller writes from Ashland, Oregon, USA, Earth. <laughs> did he write that? Yeah, he did. <laughs> you... <laughs> We're glad to know what planet you're listening on, Brian. That is his location. (laughs) And a big shout out to all of our listeners in other parts of the galaxy. You have mentioned several times uh, how 64-bit Vista will not allow unsigned kernel drivers, thus breaking some devices that require them. It's not that they require them. They just haven't written them yet. I'm wondering how much of a problem this will be with old hardware. I understand why antivirus software needs to be deep in the kernel, but what about things like printers, webcams, video, TV tuner cards? It should have no need to modify the kernel in the first place. I find it hard to believe that something as delicate as kernel modification has become so commonplace that it's used instead of regular APIs. Unless, of course, this is poetic justice for Microsoft for hoarding all the good APIs. All the good APIs are taken. (laughs) Would it be possible for Vista to allow old, unsigned 32-bit kernel drivers to run in some kind of protected or isolated mode like DOS and Windows 98? Well, <laughs> where do where do we begin? <laughs> there the, the 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 kernel is a different dog from from applications. So it's certainly the case for example that that DOS apps are able to be hosted in a so-called DOS box and not know that they're not just running on old 16-bit DOS. Similarly, 32-bit apps, we know, will be compatible with 64-bit, well, they are compatible with 64-bit XP, and they will be compatible with 64-bit Vista. The 64-bit OSs expose a completely compatible 32-bit API for those applications to use. The problem is that kernel drivers are actually 
a, a part of the kernel. They, they, there's no way that you could run a 32-bit driver which has not been recompiled for 64 bits. There's no way you could run that driver in a 64-bit kernel. It's so just, they just have to write a new driver. That's all. Yes. It, yes. Now you could you could imagine. There's no protected mode. Because isn't that we, well, how we ran uh, uh, 16-bit drivers in 32-bit? Right. Well, and in fact, the way to think of it is that the driver is underneath that protected mode level. Ah. It's participating with the operating system. It's not being served by the operating system. Now, it happens that Windows I.O. architecture in the kernel is also sort of sort of has a client server approach so i could imagine that somebody could write a an emulation layer that would allow 32 bit well behaved drivers to be hosted in a 64 bit environment for example freebsd now the latest version of freebsd runs windows drivers so you can literally use windows drivers on freebsd it's done that by emulating the whole device driver interface to a windows driver the problem is that a windows driver that then also tried to make kernel modifications well you can imagine there's there's no windows kernel on freebsd so that would just explode completely <laughs> and similarly if a if a 32 bit driver that was that was being hosted by this hypothetical 64 bit 32 bit driver compatibility thing if it tried to make any modifications to the kernel that would explode too so you could imagine that a well-behaved 32-bit driver could theoretically be hosted by some special, really cool kind of layer. envelope thing. An envelope that sort of encapsulated it and pretended to be 32-bit windows when it really wasn't. Um, still, if that was an ill-behaved driver, there's no way that would work. And we don't want it. No 32-bit kernel. There. We we don't want it. We, we the point of having 64-bit. If you're going to run 64-bit, is running 64-bit drivers. Yep. Don't be silly. Don't try to yep. run 32-bit I mean, drivers. It seems to me that this is this really does make a nice sort of a cut point where where older hardware that has to have older drivers is just going to be stuck with with 32 bits and it's going to only be the the like the currently supported drivers i mean it's not like converting these things from 32 bits to 64 is a huge problem you have a a 64 bit c compiler you you, you just recompile you recompile you need to change some things but it's not like i mean basically the whole the whole IO architecture has pretty much stayed the same in Vista. So it's not like you're having to write the driver from scratch. You just need to expand it to 64 bits. And, and, and then the compiler run, should and, do most of that, right? Unless you've got some sort of dependency on register size. Yep. The compiler does most of it, and then you run it through various driver certification suites that Microsoft provides. That's the problem, because that's expensive. To verify that it all works. Yeah, and that's why a lot of people won't do this. Because they don't want to spend the money until yeah, well, there, until there seems to be a big market for this, uh, they're yep, not going to do we, it. 
We definitely have the chicken and egg. The good news is that my Vista had all the drivers for my hardware out of the box. And it may very well be that Microsoft, recognizing this chicken and egg problem, has got so many drivers built in to Vista now, both 32 and 64-bit, that this is not going to be as big a problem as some of us fear. We really won't know until we start playing with it. Yeah. And and I think really underscore you shouldn't be using sixty four bit, uh, you know, and trying to get thirty two bit things to work on it. If you've got thirty two bit devices that you know drivers that you need can stay with thirty two bit Windows. It's just time to say goodbye yeah. to those. <laughs> yeah, or get rid of them. That's right. But yep. to, but but to try to try to make them work under sixty four bit is misguided to say the least. I think so. Uh, Sheldon Smith in Minneapolis has been thinking about security. He writes, I've been listening to the Security Now podcast since the very first day. Just finished 65. He's a couple behind. Listening to the discussions of security makes me wonder why Windows has so many holes. Back in the early 80s before DOS, Digital Equipment Corp. created a 32-bit operating system called VMS. It was designed to be secure from the start. Since then, it's been evolved to use the first deck alpha. So first to use Dex Alpha, so the now HP's Open VMS runs on the Itanium, which is alpha-based. In 20-some years, there have been no viruses, mostly because I don't think there are very many people running it. That's and, where we're headed here. And only a handful of worms or Trojans. The stack grows up instead of down, just as you often say would be a good idea. Also, yep. there are no problems from buffer overflows. And the hardware has always supported hardware address protection, so even if data were to overflow, the hardware has stone walls to prevent the data from overwriting regions of code or having an executable stack and customers have systems with uptime measured in years and clusters with uptime measured in over a decade and new systems are still being installed of course i like my windows xp notebook it's great for writing documents and playing games this is a common uh kind of thing we hear from people who run big iron well why doesn't big iron have the same problems computers have i wanted to mention this because it does touch on the mac and and the reason that the mac doesn't have as many problems as Windows is partially that it doesn't represent the same size of target that Windows does. And so certainly the reason that the Dex VMS hasn't had virus problems is, as you said, Leo, I mean, it's, it's, it's just not being used to the same level and it's not being used by the same type of people. Remember that virus writers are often... And not, not always, but often um, younger programmers, and they are writing viruses they, they for the for the systems they have. They don't have a PDP in the basement, right? You exactly. You you know you 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 cannot write a virus for an operating system you don't have because inherently you need to know it intimately. And so so what I, you know we're already beginning to see more you know a growth in Mac problems. As the Macintosh becomes, I will dispute that. I haven't more, seen any growth in Mac problems. What Mac really? problems are you talking about? Well, I don't know. <laughs> There's press all the time about quote Mac problems, never in the wild. Okay, they're all hypothetical. Okay, well that's good. Let's hope. And, it's and, and in fact, I would. I'm not. I, mean, I agree with you that a lot of the reason why the Mac is protected is because it's you know what you just said. But there's there's also a fundamental difference in the way it's written. That provides more protection, I think. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I, 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 the, the, I think the there's fact, incentive to attack the Mac right now just to prove it can be done. I think people are trying the, it all the, the fact time. That, the fact that Windows has these problems is really not Microsoft's fault. I mean, I don't mean, you know, I'm no apologist for Microsoft. I've been, you know, 
on them since day one for for policy things. It is just so hard to catch all these sorts of problems. And I, I really have to believe that if, if the Mac were scrutinized to the same degree that Windows is, there would be problems there. On the other hand, having said that, things like ActiveX, which which is inherently a bad idea. I mean, the, the Mac doesn't have those architectural mistakes. There's, there's nothing you could call ActiveX it other has, than an architectural mistake. It has a real the, security model. You know, the idea that, that IE can invoke non, non-IE ActiveX controls, you know, rumbling around loose in the system and, and invoke overflows in those. I mean, that's just insanity. And so we're telling people to set the kill bit to prevent IE from having right. access to right. this ActiveX. That's I mean, crazy. Those, those are structural faults in Microsoft that, you know, now I'm sure they wish they hadn't done, just like they probably wish they had never allowed people to modify the 32-bit kernel. We see that Microsoft will never break compatibility. They'll just wait long enough to, to find some point where they can start things fresh. I mean, ActiveX was a, was a, a clever, componentized idea that they went too far with. So, so, yes, this is what's making Windows very vulnerable today. I have to believe, though, that there are there are unknown problems in the Mac, which people may discover um, ultimately. Although I doubt there will they will nearly be as significant as Windows. I think I think it's very clear that there are application level issues with some of the, especially with some of the older Unix applications that are just kind of lying there on the Mac OS. Yep, we know that there. You know, we know of those. Uh, the the thing that I think protects us a little bit on the Mac is is just Unless you're running as a, as an admin, but even then, there's a little protection. Nobody really runs as root on OS X, and uh, it's a lot harder for somebody from the outside to get into your system and modify it, even given these exploits and these holes. Unless you're running well, bind, yes, under, well, on OS X, and, and and there is another feature in Vista that we haven't yet covered because it's extensive. Uh, and that's called user account control (UAC). Right. They're trying to duplicate what's in the Mac. Yes, they are. And so, again, it, it means, and, and I mean, it's so extensive, we're going to do an entire episode on UAC in Vista because it is extensive and it is, well, it's wonderful, but it's also a mixed blessing because you're being hounded by this thing all the time, even if Actually, you're running as an, they, as an admin. They turned off, uh, it did for a while, you had to enter the password a bunch of times. Now you just get a, and I don't know if this was a good idea, they made it simpler for the user. Yeah, it keeps popping up. Are you sure? Dialogue. Yeah, but you can just click OK now. Or, or I, 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 I should say, is this you? Dialogue. Yeah, a little warning, but you don't have to enter a password anymore. Yep. And I'll be interested. I think the 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 most vulnerable novice users just click OK all yep. the time, and that's the problem. Jonathan Green, a listener from London, asks: I'm running mostly Macs and a PC behind a Netgear wireless router at home. The last question, by the way. This might be the longest security now ever. I might have to divide this into two parts. I'm running mostly Macs and a PC behind Netgear wireless router at home, and I have set it up to be what I believe as fairly secure. However, when I take my laptop out on the road or connect it to a corporate router, how can I be sure that I'm secure? What steps can I take within my laptop rather than the router to be more safe? I noticed when doing a Shields Up test at home, everything is stealthed. When I try the same test connected wirelessly to a work router away from home, some ports are open. 
Is it possible to make any security provisions on the laptop itself? Well, what's happening in this case is that um, that Jonathan is confusing the the local security of his laptop and the security of the router. When he's at home, as he says, behind his Netgear wireless router, and he uses security now, we are testing the public IP, which is that IP of his router. And as we know, NAT is very good security as long as you have universal plug-and-play disabled. Um, so, so he's seeing stealth at home not because his laptop is secure. He could have no firewall, for example, running on his laptop, and he would still see stealth at home because we're testing, and, and any hacker is attempting to penetrate through the public IP that is the IP of the router, and it just blocks it cold. Now, if in his corporate environment he runs shields up and he sees open ports, again, if this is a router and not just some sort of a of a non-routing gateway, then, again, the router's IP is what's being tested. So it means that the machine on the border in his corporate network has some ports open. Now, it's very likely that it has ports open. For example, it probably needs port 25 open in order for the, the corporate network to be able to receive incoming SMTP email. They may have port 80 open if there's a corporate uh, web server running on the network. So so corporate, corporate routers, corporate NAT routers, which are connecting the corporation to the net, they're inherently going to be offering services to the public, which your typical home user is not doing. So a home user will be stealth. A corporate router will probably not be. But in both cases, his laptop behind that router is probably safe. What you definitely want to do, though, again in both cases, is be running your local firewall on your laptop. And this really goes you know, for all users. It's nice to have the router protecting you, but it's still a good thing to run the firewall on your local machine. I know that you and I do, Leo. You know, um, on my Macs, I've got the Mac firewall turned on all the time. Uh, and of course, then there's also the open uh, or the hotspot VPN that we talked about, which would be another way to secure it. Right. Um, would that give you, it, that wouldn't change how your Shields Up is responding, though. Well, it, it, it exactly. It wouldn't do that. Well, Shields Up would then be testing the hotspot server, right. and they've got a bunch of ports open. I remember because I, I was doing that at one point. I was I was interested in seeing what ports the, the VPN server had open. And also running a VPN wouldn't necessarily protect you from other access of your laptop by local people who are accessing your laptop's IP, the tunnel would only be allowing you to get a tunneled connection to the internet. So really, you know, the the the, the short answer to to Jonathan's question is just run, make sure you've got your software firewall up and running on your laptop. <laughs> All right. And with that, we conclude this marathon episode Holy camoly of uh, security <laughs> now. We thank our sponsor, Astaro Corporation, makers of the great Astaro uh, Security Gateway, for their support. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, say that they're going to stick with us through 2007. Uh, we just got word from them, and that's great. Uh, we're happy to have them as a, a sponsor from day, you know, very early on, not day one, but very early on of security now, and we're glad that they're continuing forward with us into the new year. 
Well, you know, Leo, you know, we're, we're doing a good job for them, and we know that they're doing a good job for our listeners because we get email from Lots people saying, support, you know, yeah. hey, I tried Astaro because you guys were, you know, we know that they're sponsoring uh, Security Now, and, you know, people really like it. Well, it's nice because you can try it for free. Now, if you're a home user, of course, you can just download the software and put it on any old beater PC. Maybe that uh, Pentium 3 you've got lying around. They <laughs> <laughs> make a great Astaro Security Gateway. And then I think it's 79 euros a year if you decide that you want to subscribe to the all the additional updates, the uh, antivirus and the anti-spam and all that stuff. But the free software is very, very capable. Now, if you're a business... Uh, and you you want superior protection from spam, from visits, uh, viruses, from hackers, complete VPN capabilities. You get intrusion protection, content filtering, and an industrial strength firewall. I mean, this appliance is amazing. You can try it absolutely free by contacting Astaro at www.astaro.com or call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. I know a number of people who've tried this and then gone on to become customers because they're so impressed. You can get a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway Appliance right there in your business. That's one eight seven seven the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. And we thank them for their support and their ongoing support of security now. It's really nice to have a, a sponsor that believes in the product so much. Uh, Steve Gibson's website is grc.com. That's where you'll find the 16 kilobit versions of this podcast for the bandwidth impaired and full transcripts, too. If you'd like to read along, this will be a long one. I'm sorry, Elaine. <laughs> oh, she's going to be typing today. Uh, and it's mostly my fault because I kept interrupting. Um, let's see. What else? Uh, oh, and that's where you'll find SpinWrite, which is Steve's great product for uh, hard drive recovery and maintenance. There is nothing better. I'm just going to say that. There is nothing better. It's the granddaddy of these applications and still the best. Version 6 now? Pays all my bills. Yep. SpinWrite spin right 6. SpinWrite 6. GRC. It supports my coffee habit. <laughs> Something's got to. He's up to, he's up to Quinti Venti Lattes. If you want to hear Steve talk about that a little bit with Amber and, uh, and, and uh, me, uh, he was on Net at Night, which uh, is up on the Twit Network uh, last Sunday. It was really fun. Really it was great fun to have with you. Thanks for joining Amber us. again. Yeah. yeah I miss Amber. She's, uh, she's doing great at City TV, though. And uh, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to persuade her to follow us out to Vancouver, but I doubt we'll be able to get her to do that. She's happy where she is. Yep. Steve Gibson, thank you. I'm happy uh, to be wrapping this thing up. It's lunchtime. <laughs> we'll have some lunch, Leo, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next Thursday on Security Now. Security Now.